Michael Marcus is a person whose recovery I have admired for many years. He published a book about his misadventures in addiction, sexuality, deceit, and depravity called Number One Son and Other Stories in 2017, and his powerful literary voice and miraculous ability to survive and evolve make him an absolutely thrilling guest to welcome to Sober Sex. Trigger warning, we talk about some sexual trauma, some incest stuff, um, Although it's very vague, if that stuff triggers you, please uh, listen mindfully or don't listen. Um, and Mike has one of the best memories and storytelling minds of anybody I've ever met or interviewed on this show. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got a special growth. So you were in Connecticut, beautiful Connecticut. <laughs> so beautiful, ridiculous. Are you because you were in like Westport? I think I saw in a photo. That was in Westport, and it's it's becoming multicultural, believe it or not. Like Shonda Rhimes just bought a house there, and thank God it was so refrigerator fucking white when I was there years ago. And yeah, because you're like an East Coast dude, right? Like your family's from New York. Uh, originally born in Freeport, but I've been out here since. Oh my God, 1970, so more. <laughs> I, I hear that. Um, and I feel like that, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of be relocated as like as a fellow New Yorker who kind of relocated to the West Coast to get sober. That, that, yeah, that yeah, I remember very well. That was like yeah. 2005, right? 2006. Good fucking memory. <laughs> well, you're pretty like special person. You stand out. You stood out to me, so I recognized you very Early on, I was like, wow, who's this? Interesting. You had a really cool vibe about you and just what you were doing. And you know what I mean? That's so nice to hear. And, and likewise, and I'm so excited to like get to know more about you today because like, I know we have a book, but this is far more engaging. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, I wonder, and, and just to kind of, because it's the, the kind of the sober sex stock questions are, um, what are your pronouns? Uh, he, him. And what is your experience of gender today? Um, I think of my own or in general? Of your own. I think between 2017 and probably around 20, 2021, I was pretty frequently pigeonholed for being a cis male, um, specifically in improv groups. I was taking some improv classes before. Yeah, like around 2017, my, I think you know my sister had OD'd and died. Yeah. In 2013. And I was going to go back to therapy, but instead I went to improv because improv. <laughs> because for me, improv's like, oh, wait, I get to pay attention to what other people are saying and doing instead of constantly trying to get out of self with self. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And also to like not kind of be an improvement project. Yeah, yeah. And being somebody who's starting on a therapy when I was eight years old and like trauma workshops, inner child workshops, 18 months in a youth program from 16 and a half to 18. I just know that as somebody who has alcoholism, that therapies, therapy can be a real trap to get stuck in like constantly, you know, navel gazing and looking at me. So back to that, um, around 2016, 2017, I got back involved with improv and I just saw that what I used to experience in like the Upright Citizens Brigade or um, another theater, the IO uh, Improv Olympics out of Chicago, but in on Hollywood Boulevard, this, and I won't mention the name because I don't want to diss the place at all, but it was really heavy handed with the white male destroying everything everywhere which of course I agree with our government and I agree with the country in general being driven and owned by white men. I mean, it's just, it's a known fact, but as somebody who like went to Hollywood high school and grew up in multiculturalism and like I was friends with transsexuals in 19 fucking 80 when I was going to Hollywood high to be pigeonholed like that was really painful. And I stopped Mm -hmm. trying to defend myself. Um, But I understood it was also a crucial turning point. You know, it was me too. There was a lot more homophobia than ever. There was obviously the recognition of how native Americans and black folk and people of color in general were completely shit on. And I'm there. I've always been there. I've been somebody who's stood up and gone to protest and voted but it was pretty painful. It was pretty painful to be grouped in. Mm. But I was like, I get it because a lot of people have been grouped in, you know. And as my mother-in-law tells me, because, you know, I'm married to Dana, an incredible woman and a black woman. Um, her mother-in-law told me a long time ago, she said, you may not have white privilege, but you have the complexion for the protection. Mm. And that really hit me on a different level. Because I will never know, obviously, what it is like to be in that skin or in that gender or what it may, whatever it is. So I think I had to unlearn certain ideas I had had that I'd carried for a long time about gender. And I also had to kind of unlearn the idea that I'm there to protect people, that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just another version of a white leader. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, let me get in front of their movement and be their fucking spokesman. Like it's really a trip. You know, if we can all meet and unify on the level of like heart and, you know, unification, it's a whole different thing as opposed to like, let me take the helm. And you know how that serves us. Absolutely not. Like, let me run and manage and see what I can do to make this right. And I think that's a slippery slope for somebody who is an alcoholic or a drug addict. I've watched it happen. I've watched it happen through 2020 where people got extremely, there's nothing wrong with being a social justice warrior. But again, I think for an addict alcoholic to lose sight of my primary purpose, it could be, it could mean drinking and using again when things aren't going my way. And you know, things aren't ever going to go my way out. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting too, because it sounds like you have, you're in the process of like 
becoming humble, right? Which is kind of the opposite of like, of A, self-knowledge, but B, also like, I know what it is and I can fix it by myself. Um, Yeah. And yeah, and, and it's also like, you know, deeply uncomfortable. So I wonder kind of how the process of like, being kind of confronted with it sounds like you felt like you were typecast yeah totally. um, and totally. and then kind of had to like look at your relationship with the role that you were being kind of shoved into is that accurate yeah yeah that's a really that's a really good way to put it so I'm not I was never like a frat guy or like this dude that was just openly misogynistic of course there were ideas emotions and attitudes around that because some of that was hardwired with the men that had raised me. I mean, real fucking animals, to put it, you know, at a base level. And I was born in 1964. Was that toxic masculinity? I mean, we can look back and say that, but there was no other philosophy to live by because men just weren't going to therapy. Men weren't, you know, going to Al-Anon or CODA or really examining the belief systems and ideas around relationships and just plain old respect for women and people of color. So that was something that I couldn't deconstruct without going to therapy, without really having a spiritual awakening. And I claim that shit. I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of not just doing the work in the coffee club, the 12 steps, as I like to call it. <laughs> My friend Jack, he calls it. But just like surrendering into the idea that I fucking know what's good, not just for me, but for anybody. Like, I don't even know what's good for me most of the time. If I have this problematic fault-finding narrative that is like trying to run the show, right? It's kind of that duality thing that we all face. But I think for an addict alcoholic, again, the stakes are a little higher. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it sounds like I know that you've had direct experience with that. Um, both in your own story and that of your family. And, um, yeah. and I'm curious, like, let's, can we talk a little bit about your journey? Like sure. your experience with drugs and alcohol kind of growing up? Because I do think that that's like, it's, it's interesting that the gender question, which I don't unfortunately think that like, you know, quote unquote, cis men are asked a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, well, Cause they, you know, there's a certain level, like, especially white men, it's like, stop mansplaining your opinion doesn't matter nobody gives a fuck and it's weird because i think that that's doing a lot more harm than good i think that alcoholism and drug addiction has plagued every community but i think that if you just shut down people and not give them any sort of voice whatever their opinions and ideas are around any subject it's really closed-minded and i think it's the antithesis of being a liberal i really do or, I mean, I think that, like, you know, as somebody who identifies as a feminist, this idea that it's, like, it's moving towards gender equality, not just, like, shutting down dudes and any exactly. conversation that is, like, not inclusive of that voice is kind of missing the point. Like, it's just, yeah. it's using, yeah, it's using the same tools of the patriarchy to destroy the patriarchy. Which is yeah, you. And that's, see how hardwired that is into society? And I understand, like, sometimes it does take a fight. And sometimes the pendulum has to fucking swing and stay there for a long minute, but like, I don't want to be typecast and I don't want to just kind of be like this. Oh, okay. That's who I am based on the fact that that's, it was just so perpetually coming at me. Like I had a woman that was great improver 
but constantly talked about how it's white men and they're rapists and they're this and that. And it was just like, can we just do improv? Like I will respect the boundaries of people in improv. And we all talked about what was acceptable, what's not acceptable, which I think is pretty dope. But between her and a self-hating white dude, that's what I like to call them because they probably have stuff they haven't unpacked. So they're dissing every other white man because they're insecure with their attitudes or principles around everything they came up around that time. And I wasn't, you know, yeah. And I mean, I do. It's also sounds like that, like this kind of like to shame others is not a path of healing. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, it, and it's easy to slip into, I think, because like, again, we're kind of socialized in this, like in this modality, but anyway, so let's talk about what it was like. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, what do we, do we have time to like, get down a little bit yeah for sure like it's a long form podcast i like as long as you want to talk we we talk great fantastic yeah. <laughs> go crazy what go off like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i was born in freeport long island um in 1964 it was about eight months after the assassination of J jfk we were actually moving into the gulf of tonkin it was the beginning of vietnam and I, and the only reason why I say these things is because I researched what was going on when I came into this world, you know, or onto this world, I guess. And there was a lot of just solemn anger, grief, sadness. We were on the precipice of this destructive war. Um, and I just remember sensing discomfort. My father was a pretty violent person early on. Um, he groomed us to be criminals, basically had us doing things, walking out of stores with stuff. Um, my mother was drinking and smoking cigarettes, and I believe eating diet pills while she was pregnant with me because my father said she was overweight. That's like, really, dude? Um, <laughs> She's pregnant, sir. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like this. Okay. Yeah. The insanity. Um, and at a really young age, I remember being told <clears throat> not to cry, to be a man. I mean, I'm, I heard that probably from the age of five or six. So that started that, you know what I mean? That like, okay, I can't really show that. So what does it mean to be a man? I had no idea. So I started really looking up at these men in my life. And that one, the first one was my father. Um, I just remember a lot of yelling and screaming. And I would say that I probably went into survival mode five or six years old. Um, around that time too, I started acting out. I started stealing things from the neighborhood. I picked up this obsession with burning things down. Um, there was these incredible matches called Ohio blue tips that you could strike anywhere. There was something that Oh no. And I like how it's literally a child playing with matches. Yeah, like, yeah there's no yeah, we're straight it's up. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> no, metaphor. For real, for real. And I would literally just walk around and strike matches and just throw them everywhere. Like I'd say probably between six and ten. This was bad. This was really bad. Um I burned down the backyard. Um, just throwing matches everywhere. 
um, I burned my mother's bed because at that point she had divorced my father and was with this new guy that she met who was actually a sex therapist, lived on Long Island. Um, his name was Dr. Sigmund Lichter. And wow. he wrote, he wrote a, you know, just a name. But he was like classic. I know, it's so trippy. And he had that just classic, like, 70s therapist look. You know, the, the turtleneck, the pipe, like salt and pepper, sweet back hair. You know, like real New York-looking sex therapist. The and how did, like, I'm also curious for your mom, um, who, like, how did she go from, like, career criminal <laughs> dad to like, Sigmund Lichter, Dr. Sigmund Lichter? Um. She went from that, from loading our car, loading us into her Impala. It was her 63 Impala and driving us over there in the middle of the night because my father started beating her and um, like ripping clumps of hair out of her head and oh my God. punched her in the face a couple of times. She had black eyes. These are things that my aunt and my cousins told me. And how, like around how old were you at that time? Say around six, probably six okay. years old. So around this, like lighting things on fire, shutting down all feelings, and then like mom leaves dad. Sounds like kind of a perfect storm. Yeah, it's totally perfect storm. <laughs> so you just mentioned that you were an excellent liar. As after you liar. drove your mom's car into a field. <laughs> drove my. It was actually her boyfriend's car. Sorry, oh, let me get that right. Sigmund's car into a field. <laughs> so what a great way to come in with your son, right? Um, but I think, you know, Sigmund understood he was a sex therapist. He wasn't like a child psychologist per se, you know, he, it wasn't like they were deconstructing what was wrong with the child then. They were fucking medicating kids. They were putting kids in boarding schools. They were putting kids in psych wards because nobody gave a fuck about women and children at that point. We really didn't. Women and children had zero rights. And I mean, I think they had zero rights up until... Just recently. No, I mean, I mean like, even now it's pretty bad. <laughs> really? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Or, or kids have just too many rights. You know, again, this pendulum just starts swinging. Like kids are either like so far out of check or being put way too deep into check. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like, again, no, totally. That'd be some wiggle room in the middle. Um, so yeah, that was my first experience with, you know, or Sigmund's first experience with me. Oh, by the way, he wrote a man <laughs> book. You can hear me, right? Oh yeah. no. Oh, okay, good. Yes. He wrote. He okay, cool. He wrote a book called "Man: The Sensual Male." Oh my God, is it up here? I love that you have it. <laughs> Holy shit! Well, it was like it was the last one on Amazon. I had to pay forty dollars for it. Um, is he still alive? Should have him no. on the show. <laughs> oh, oddly enough, this is a book. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> listeners, it's like, it just says oh, man yeah. in big orange letters. Man, the central man. You know what I mean? It's like, right. Uh, one of the nations, I just have to talk about this for one second. One of the nation's foremost practicing psychologists tells you how you can become a fully sensual male. All right. So here's on the back. Can I read this? This is what I fucking grew up around. Yes, of course. Can a book stretch? Because, 
Yo, I mean, just to, just to briefly interrupt you, our next question is, what were the first messages you received around sex and sexuality? So this is actually a beautiful, like, bridge. Oh, yeah, this is, this is it. I mean, there was also a lot of loud fucking going on, um, which, you know, was, like, so heavy. As a kid, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to learn about sex at one point. But that real, like, door open, moaning, groaning fucking sex is just, like, cringy. Nightmarish. Yeah, nightmarish. And me and my sister, like, held on for dear life. Like, she was three years older than me and pretty much raised me. Made sure, like, the best that she could go- do to be a caretaker. And, like, would literally hold each other with all the violence and sex that we were experiencing around us. And to take it a step further, there was a little, <laughs> there was a little incest, you know, that was propagated by my sister, but it was because she was being molested by my father. At first it was just grooming, like literally like dressing her up and what have you. But it was really nice that we got to look at that in sobriety and she made amends to me and I made amends to her. And we had a really clear slate when she passed, you know? It was such That's a, really powerful. Like we were able to like not have that thing. You know, that thing is kills people, that thing, you know, it separates people. And those experiences, obviously, that we have as children just carry into every relationship in our life. You know, people are like, well, you know, that's why you have a hard time with women. It's like, no, that's why I have a fucking hard time, period. It's not just yeah. with men. Ob- the most obvious thing is the relationships are all going to be affected. But like it affects every friendship and it affects every boundary being broken. It affects like this weird trauma bonding because what we're, you know, putting out is coming back. We're just a reflection of who we're bringing into our life on some levels. So we both got really free of that. You know, I don't talk about that stuff, but I think hopefully that will help somebody. No, thank you so much for sharing it because I think like, obviously it's like a safe and vulnerable space. And if you feel uncomfortable after the fact, like again, editable, but I do think it'll help people because like you do seem really well, you know, and I think that's a big deal to like talk about freedom from that place. Absolutely. Well, I think too, it's not who I am. It was a story. It was a story that dominated me. And, you know, when we really start to face and be rid of these things, as they say, and deconstruct who we think we are, we find out that, that those have been narratives that have been blocking us from any sort of success. I mean, and the truth is, is like, I do believe that there's a light deep down within. And it just, that was just traumatized, like fucking crazy. And that light was hidden, you know, until, until the path was cleared. And until like, I could really see that I don't have to be my story, you know? And it's not even my story anymore. It's a story. It's a story. You know, that whole idea of ownership is what's killing people, right? My trauma. Yeah, and believing the narrative. like Yes. Believing the narrative to a point where they medicate the fuck out of themselves and they constantly claim, like, my trauma, my ADD, you know, my physical, mental, whatever that thing is, and it's... It's protection. It's protection against the world to put that thing on. 
And that thing being stripped away and actually being okay with moving about the cabin freely is like really cool to not be in that bondage of every fucking principle, belief system, idea, um, you know, trauma, historic belief systems, whatever. And you'd be like, oh, fuck, man, this is all right. I'm cool. Yeah, totally. And I can, and like, and I have access to like ease and comfort, like within myself. Yes. Most of the time. (laughs) Like. No, me too. It's a miracle. Me too. And I don't believe the fucking hype up here. Whatever that is, whatever that story is that's being produced, I've kind of lost interest in it. It's for like entertainment purposes. You know what I mean? It's for writing. It's for improv. It's for fucking sitting around and shooting the shit from a place of kind of, you know, alcoholics are some of the most darkest fucking people. And we get to access that darkness with like comedy and joy and you know, it's not even about get over it. It's about we get through it. We walk through this shit. And it's like, it's just, it's such a fucking metamorphosis that we go through to get down, <laughs> right? To get down to something that's really nothing. Like that whole realm of the spirit, it's a no thing. It's a no thing. There is nothing. <laughs> But, like, imagine trying to explain that to, like, somebody who has zero days, <laughs> who's, like, I really... I don't question it. Of course not. Because I came in and out for 25 years. Nobody could fucking tell me that. It's like, wait, ugh, that's that fucking hippie, fucking hoodoo, voodoo, juju shit or whatever, right? Yeah, or just not, like, not being able to comprehend a period of just, like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, this is the paradigm in which I'm operating, in which I need medication real bad. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> right. It may be the only way I can hear you is with like a Xanax. Do you got one of those? <laughs> um, I mean, and I'm so I'm curious as to kind of when drugs and alcohol enter the picture, like for you, because it sounds like you had a lot around you. Yes, and... a lot around me. We moved out to California. We lived in Thousand Oaks, which was a sleepy little town. It was my first experience with Taco Bell. It's the first Taco Bell ever. <laughs> so that was, um, I remember that very specifically because re- like fast food restaurants were not fast food restaurants then. There was a lot of pride that was taken in McDonald's and Taco Bell and fucking Del Taco. And I had great experiences there as a kid and didn't have the best diet, ate a lot of sugar. Um, a lot of crazy stuff happened in, in Thousand Oaks where my mother and Sigmund Lichter got more involved into swinging. So they'd be into swinging and occasionally there would people, be people at the house having like open sex in the backyard. Um, we moved from there to a town called Fountain Valley where now my mother and Sigmund were like disappearing a lot. And my sister was raising me. I think she was 10. That was oh, seven. No. Yeah. So they would disappear a lot and go to Mexico and party down in La Fonda and Rosarita beach. Um, and again, it was starting to ramp up. Then we moved to moved a lot in my life, which also explains why, there was no stability or structure because as a child, when you constantly get moved and moved and moved, you can't really develop relationships and friendships. So you're ready to shut down at any moment. And again, not open the heart because fuck, I'm not going to be here long. So no, it's going to be too painful also. Just yeah, like- it's going to be too painful. So again, pushing, pushing. Uh, then we arrived at a little town called Costa Mesa on the bluffs of Costa Mesa. And that is where the real bizarre shit took off. Um, my stepbrother Glenn was this completely detached, possibly autistic 
older kid, I just saw him for the first time in 42 years. About two summers ago, he came out here. It was so bizarre. Um, but he really tried to. He made me lunch. He'd wake me up in the morning and said, hey, do you want money for lunch or do you want me to make you lunch? And most of the time I, I had to make me lunch because it was just made with love. You know what I mean? He really cared. Where my mom cared, but she just was drinking and out of her mind. And I had so much abuse. You know, grew up with like the, not just a lot. I don't want to speak for her, but she went through a lot of sexual stuff. I don't want to get too deeply into it, but, you know, totally detached, shut down. Like a, a woman from New York born in 1938. Need I say fucking more? You know what I mean? And was living, yeah, especially living in Far Rockaway, like oof. Far Rockaway, but had an aunt that was really wealthy that lived on the Upper West Side who she'd get to go and hang out with. And then just that person was out of her life and it was back to the Rockaways. So my mother had like an idea that there was a better way of life, but didn't ex get to experience that for too long, unfortunately. Um, so getting back to Costa Mesa, Costa Mesa, I was about 10 years old when I first, when I smoked my first cigarette and I sat in the garage by myself, lit this fucking thing. And it was a camel non-filter. An auspicious start <laughs> by yourself. You know yeah. It's, which is funny because I ended up smoking crack in bathrooms or in cars trapped basically by myself. You know, Thomas, after forewarning, failed the heat, right? Failed the heat, exactly. Um, and I remember taking a drag off this thing. And it's like, just think of a 10-year-old child, never with a substance in their body, except for sugar, of course taking a drag off of a camel non-filter, I immediately shit my pants. Like, I just remember shitting my pants, freaking the fuck out. Like, I got to change these. I got to go to school. And Oh, no. It was in the morning also. <laughs> I was like, I'm never doing that again. And I was smoking at 11 years old. I was smoking daily, like a lot of cigarettes. You needed smoking. something so bad is what that story yeah. tells me. So bad. Sugar wasn't cutting it anymore, you know? My experiences with sugar were pretty heavy, too. Again, I'd get up really early in the morning. We'd have sugar cereal, but it was a treat. And I'd pour a whole box of Captain Crunch into a big bowl, saturated in milk, and just draw the shades and just eat cereal, like watching fucking whatever, Warner Brothers cartoons, and just get so fucked up. Like that kind of captain crunch experience where it just rips apart everything in your mouth oh yeah your whole <laughs> mouth is just like sandpaper <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> um i know about that <laughs> hard like my first thing was food before anything you know food and fixing on whatever um and then i drank my first beer with the johnson brothers in costa mesa shout out the johnson brothers <laughs> i hope they're listening <laughs> Oh, no, a couple of them are dead, and the other one's in prison for life. Um, and I remember sitting in this room with these really cute girls, Shannon Gross, and this other girl, and I remember trying to impress them. And I was wearing, like, a Sears, like, sweater vest, like these blown-out fucking wallabies, tough skins, and just dorky as fuck. And I felt that. Because I had already had such a deep sense of self and like the selfishness, self-centeredness, whatever, that whole thing about how do I look, what's going on. And 
I didn't really, you know, what's funny is I thought that was normal for every kid to be that deeply self-obsessed. And it's not really, really isn't, you know what I mean? Like not for a child that's been kind of properly brought up, whatever, because I had a lot of friends like that. And I couldn't understand why their family was so loving. It was so foreign to me, like to sit and have dinner and, because we made our own, we were totally latchkey. We made our own dinners and like boiled bags of fucking chicken a la king on toast. Like just really weird, like around fire. And I remember like opening this bag so quickly that the chicken a la king like spilled on my neck. And I had this fucking crazy fermented blister on my neck. Like, um, so I drank this first beer with sitting around with the Johnson brothers and it was like, Four channels then. I remember they were switching around and then the, they put it on the late, late, late show. Some weird old movie. And I remember just drinking that fucking warm Coors Tall Boy. You know, and they had those removable fucking, you know, those tabs. And they all removed their tabs and put it in the can. I was like, oh, what if they swallow it? Wow, that's fucking hardcore. <laughs> that. Such a dumb way to die. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Here lies. Um, and I just like this thing in the connection to the world, man. It's so, like, the way you describe it is so visceral also. It's mm -hmm. like, suddenly, the boy is online. <laughs> suddenly, it was like, and that warmness and that connection. And one or two sips probably would have been good for my little fucking tiny body, but it took off, man. I drank that beer. I vomited all over the fucking table, the floor. Here I am trying to impress, you know, Shannon Gross and her friend. The Johnson brothers are full-on greasers, you know. Think, think outsiders, that that kind of gang, you know. Fucking. Pendleton. They sound very cool. <laughs> they had a cool thing going. Um, they had a BB gun, and in the backyard we would shoot at the, a a, uh, a picture of a cop that was put on the tree. Like we would be shooting a BB gun at this cop. Like that was my first experience with fuck the police, which, which later on I kind of understood like, Oh yeah, these are fucking some brutal bullying assholes. Anyways, different story. And the next morning I woke up and I was hung over. God, I remember this so vividly. I was super hung over. I was like, Oh my God, I'm never doing that again. But just like the cigarette, there was an effect produced that created such a disassociation from me, from who I thought was me, right? Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Sigmund Lichter, my mother split. She ended up with a guy named Hal. He lived on Royalton Drive, just off of Coldwater Canyon. So this whole other world <clears throat> now opened up. Mm -hmm. Father basically had us most of the time and I'd go up to LA come up here and hang out with my mom. And I just remember it was so cool. This guy had a shitload of money. He lived in this, I drove by the house the other day, because, not the other day, it was quite a while ago because I just wanted to have a memory of that and see it. And I was totally okay with it. There was no trauma because that was the first time I did co cocaine when I was 12 years old. And I just remember there was a specific thing that happened with that too. Um, and I just hated Orange County where we lived. My dad lived in Tustin with his third wife. My dad's been married. He was married six times. So there's all those different people coming in and out, in and out of my life. But I remember taking those trips up here. I would take the Greyhound 
fucking by myself from Orange County to downtown LA at 11 years old, 12 years old. Like, you, like that Greyhound station down there was so fucking gnarly. Like, oh yeah, let's just put our fucking 11 year old on the bus. Like, That's insane. <laughs> and then expect you to like get around town. Like, oh my God. That's <laughs> crazy. I loved coming up here, man. LA just had this thing and they would pick me up and we'd go to the pantry and I'd have a steak and we'd drive around Hollywood Boulevard and sunset. And, you know, compared to where my dad lived in fucking sleepy ass Tustin with his wife, but he was a city dude, but he just like, he was this guy that knew how to run circles around simpletons, if that makes sense. You know, just like New York. Yeah, so it was like actually worked out well for him. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. He's like, you know what? They may know my act in the city. Let me head out to the fucking suburbs and see what <laughs> ring out of these motherfuckers. You know what I mean? Um, and his, his anger definitely ramped up. There was more like backhands. There was more screaming and yelling. Um, he literally had these two birds that he treated better than he treated us. This parrot, Jojo, who I loved, and this other bird was an African gray. Who We're was so smart, right? They were super smart, but the African gray was so neurotic and just like totally, like literally picked up everything my father said. It was like motherfucker, cocksucker, like this, he like going and was so freaked out, probably from the energy of what oh, yeah. was going on, it ripped out all of its own feathers. This thing would be like sitting in the cage, bald most of the time. Just like cursing. <laughs> this poor guy. I mean, but it's like, what a like, like tragic metaphor for your childhood. You know what I mean? Like at least you found drug. This yeah, little totally. boy had no cocaine. <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and hanging out up there, I remember doing cocaine for the first time. My sister went to Beverly Hills High for like just long enough to fucking be introduced to some shit. And I remember doing cocaine and it was just, again, like, wow, just this full connection and freedom. Because I think for co cocaine for a child, <laughs> for Cocaine for a child. That's a great title for any. I mean, you're 12. There's no other word for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, for somebody like me, it was like this other form of ADD medication. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, they say that, right? That like kids who have ADD, ADHD, when given stimulants, will chill the fuck out. And that was yeah. probably really helpful for you. <laughs> and have really good conversations and talk to my sister about stuff and. So that was the first time. Then we moved from that place in Tustin to another place on Salt Air Drive, to another place on Charwood Street, to another place on Tea House Lane. Um, between all those times, I'd go back and forth. My mother was still doing her partying thing. God, this could be four podcasts. I'm sorry. That's cool. No apologies. Um, <laughs> we love it. Um, and we landed in Tustin another part of Tustin and got involved in that area. There was one black kid in my school, Rodney Lewis. And there was one Mexican kid in my school, Carlos Espinosa, I think his name was. 
Your mind is like a trap. I can't remember anything. <laughs> and I blame drugs, but clearly that's not well, a problem. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, I did so much work around all this. And then when I wrote that book, so much came out. And I literally needed more therapy and a lot more step work because the, that unearthed trauma was just fucking gnarly. But that was where the cocaine really started. And But at this point, my sister was 17. And she started going out with a pretty high level coke dealer named Fabio Escobar. Yes. <laughs> that family. <laughs> it was really That's incredible. incredible. It's crazy. Really into disco. And like my mother had moved away from Hal and got with this guy that was a really high level, level Quaalude dealer at the Rainbow and the Roxy. Oh, man. So you're just surrounded, surrounded. at 14. Uh, 13. Jesus. Seventh grade. And right? then, well, so like post 12. No. <laughs> so, like, Michael, um, but I wonder, like, so it sounds like a lot of your using was just kind of like checking, uh, checking out and also like isolating. And I wonder kind of how, like how sex was informed by drugs or vice versa, or was that not even like kind of something that you were about yet? Cause you were such a young kid. Well, I remember, <laughs> I remember going through puberty and this was around, I went through puberty pretty early. Um, I think it was in seventh grade. I guess that's not early. 12, 13 years old. It is, I think it's, it's pretty young for a boy. Oh, it is? Like, you know. <laughs> I think that that probably got released with so much other stuff. And plus, like I said, I grew up around so much sex that I completely thought that sex was, I don't even know if I thought that sex was love, but it was definitely like, you know, just everyday fucking and orgies and people getting down. But I remember just rubbing my dick against everything. Like, it was just so... <laughs> and it's funny because I've dated women and we've had these kind of conversations. So like, And women are like, oh, yeah, I remember, like, riding the fucking armrest of the fucking couch or whatever. And I'm like, and I get it. But, like, it got pretty intense really quick. I don't know if you've ever read Portnoy's complaint. I have not. Yeah. Philip Roth talks about coming into that. And years later, like, you know, like uh, puberty and, and years later I wrote that. It just gave me like this feeling of, okay, good. This is what. You're not I, alone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cause it's so shame based and just growing up under the lash of like the Judeo Christian fucking bullshit. Like it's all no, totally and purity culture, even if it's not like it's all of like sex sells, right? But you're like not supposed to kind of pay any attention to it, like right? Exactly, exactly. Um, Especially so that, in Hollywood, I mean, Christ. Oh, no, it's so intense, dude. Let me get the fuck out of here. <laughs> a shitload of money and move out to where you are. I do. I want to be an expatriate. I'm sick of it. I mean, it's very, it's very cheap here, which is also nice. And like, <laughs> there's no reflective surfaces, which is oh. really cool. Oh, oh, wow. Excellent. Oh my God. You are truly in the countryside. That is so dope. Yeah. Here. Um, so it really took off. It really took off. And I started stealing, stealing a lot of money. Um, my father had now left Shirley and he was with Linda one. Cause there was also a Linda. Two. <laughs> no, he was with Linda two. There was a Linda one before that. This like unassuming farm girl from Illinois that my father met while he was a, travel agent 
Oh shit, can you hold on one second? We were at the Linda. Yes. Linda to <laughs> an unassuming farm girl that your father terrorized yeah. while he was a travel agent. Yes. <laughs> he was a so my father owned after breaking into vending machines, he owned vending machines. Um, then from there, he <laughs> to, that's like he's like, now I've figured it out. I need these in my life somehow. Like how? Yeah, right. Exactly. Then he owned a cleaning company called Mister Maven on Long Island, and worked like really big, exclusive, like Great Gatsby, fucking Sands Point, huge mansions and shit. Um, and they gave him the keys to the houses. So what he did was he worked there cleaning and had crews. He had five trucks. Like my father had all these amazing businesses, but just burned them all down and went on to the next. So he made copies of the keys and went in and stole like oh, God. and jewelry, but he didn't go in until like a year later. So it was super random at that point and the business had already been gone. So he did that. Then he had the travel agency and then he started like with diamonds and that was in the seventies, um, late, no mid seventies. So anyways, back to the Linda, because this will all tie in. He was living with Linda too. And I started stealing her money. She had a shitload of money in gold, which by the way, I made amends for it was $9,000. We figured because I was stealing these little credits, credit Suisse one ounce fucking ingots and there was a guy in LA that had a pawn shop and he would let me come up there at 13 years old and just and be like, I have this weird gold stash, like a baby pirate. Like what the fuck? <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I wonder what was going through that man's head. You know what just I mean? Like, oh, here comes this kid again. <laughs> He's got all the gold. We can fucking short sell him, give him fucking three cents on the, on the ounce. Um, and I started really getting into Coke and just stealing quaaludes from my stepfather um, and buying mushrooms and eating mushrooms every weekend and drinking fucking Heineken. And then I found vodka and vodka just, mm, just rocketed me, man. Vodka was a, a through line in my life. Vodka, crack cocaine, opiates, and benzos were just this fucking thing that just went through my life, especially when quaaludes, they stopped making quaaludes. Um, and one day my stepmother came home she's like, I'm missing a shitload of gold and I'm miss missing a shitload of money. Everybody's going to the gallery tomorrow to take lie detector tests. My father had a gallery. It was called empire galleries that he was laundering money for a guy in Las Vegas through and just crazy stories. That's a whole other thing that I'm writing down now. And I knew if my father came home that night, he was going to beat the living shit out of me because that's what happened most of the time when some issue came up and I was a good liar, but not as good as he was. Um, and I got on a train. I was 16 years old, 19, late 1979 and came up to LA. And now my mother was living with not Hal, but in a small apartment, the Oakwood garden apartments. You remember that place, right? Bar oh Yeah. Yeah, E302. I remember this apartment. And it was just a drug haven. He was he was working doctors all over town. He was selling quaaludes, fucking Lily F40s, reds, rainbows, Dilaudid, fucking Doradin, like all these pills were everywhere. And I learned how to fucking mix pills. And my mother was a nurse at the time at Cedar Sinai, and she had a PDR. And I learned very well how to read this physician's desk reference match up all these pills and be like, oh, 
oh fuck, this will do this. And then in the and morning, not die, which is also <laughs> important. Amazing, right? Yeah. Amazing. Like go out for fucking 20 hours. No, I didn't die. There was some near death OD situations that people didn't leave me hanging. They kind of brought me back to life. So that's good. Or I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> um, and by the time I was 16 and a half, I was totally incorrigible. And up to that point, now like porn was on porn. Danny also sold porn. My stepfather, Danny, was my stepfather. He's another person. Um, and was selling Super 8 porn all over the city. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> another guy. Yeah, this guy. Um, was selling Super 8 porn all over the city. So he would take us with him, me and my little cousin. And we drive around to like construction sites and sell porn and go to these porn theaters like on Hollywood Boulevard. And he would sell these things. Like, so here we are again, just kind of surrounded, like walking into like a porn store uh, with peep shows and whatever and bringing porn. And he was selling his porn and pills and had some other hustle, like Shylock style hustle but was a really bad gambler and would just blow through like $10,000 on a weekend gambling and then hustle all week and sell pills and do this and then fucking, and you know what? He really tried. He tried to get me a job. He tried to just, he tried to get me laid because he was concerned about me because I was so like pimply and freaked out and just fucking totally traumatized and shut down. And I was going to Hollywood high school and I fit in with a group of people there that, you know, we're rockers and punkers and hanging out on the corner of Orange and Sunset and smoking cigarettes. And where that, you know, that area I'm talking about, mm -hmm. Orange. Totally. Right. And across the street where that in and out is now was just this fucking no tell hotel where all the pimps and the hookers hung out. We just sit there smoking and bug out on the whole thing and drinking vodka and orange juice. And the teachers would come out and they'd be smoking with us. And, Fucking, it was like that thing, like I had arrived, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, actually, it sounds like you finally hit the sweet spot that like yeah. everything made sense. <laughs> everything made sense. I met a bunch of kids that were just like me and we all like had no zero solution in mind, but we all met on the problem and we're like, yeah, let's fucking talk about this and hang out and get loaded and talk about how fucked up our lives are and go to shows and get our asses kicked in the fucking, you know, in the pit, like whatever. It was really good. And by the time I was 16 and a half, I was completely out of control, burglarizing all these apartments at Oakwood Garden, at the Oakwood Gardens, hanging out with like these pimps and strippers slash call girls. And I taken my first hit off the pipe. They called it freebasing then. And it was just like that was that thing. Um, I think I was like 16, 16 and a half. So how did, I mean, like, fast forward, I mean, that sounds pretty fucking sweet, honestly. Like, coming from an absolutely traumatized place to, like, finally finding a crew that helped it make sense and, and feeling like, yeah, I had arrived to, like, what eventually led you into recovery. And you said you'd been in and out for, like, 20 years before kind of finding where you're at now. Like, what happened? My first experience was at a place called Pride House. It was a placement center for, I remember exactly... 7447 Van Nuys Boulevard. I went in there at 16 and a half. I was made a ward of the courts. I could have left. It wasn't a locked place, but I would have went to juvenile hall and I wasn't worried about going to juvenile hall, but there was something about that place where I felt safe and protected. It's pretty interesting that I didn't become institutionalized because I was really comfortable 
in that situation where I was like woken up and told when it was dinner time and take a nap and you have your little chore you have to do. And it was a pretty it good, was all the childhood that you didn't have. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. And I did pretty well in there. I, I, I stayed, I think I huffed magic markers or, or like floor cleaner. And I try to like pour this big bottle of cologne through three slices of bread. Cause allegedly the fucking pure alcohol is at the bottom, which by the way, doesn't work. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Cause you got to do something. Yeah, again, again, because there's still that thing. And even though I'm getting all that therapy, like that malady of that inability to trust or believe in anything more than my thinking and feelings, like, fuck God. It's not even about God. I realize that now, but like that, that under being is what they call it, right? Where you're so under the lash of trauma, your thinking, your feelings, principles, ideas, belief systems, again, all that really hard wiring that I was grown, that I grew up with. So I left there, I got back involved with the pimps and the strippers and my, and sex just took off. I was like this 17 year old, 18 year old kid. And these were like these older, like strippers, fucking call girls, like not that much older, mid twenties. And love the fact that I was just this young kid, 18 years old. At that point, I kind of outgrown the acne, tall, lean, tan, you know, that whole fucking... A lunatic is always very attractive. I'm violent at this point. Um, and I just started fucking, man. And it was at a time where, like, I could have gotten AIDS because men were getting AIDS from wherever. Straight people, gay people, whatever. And I really got caught up with these, these pimps and these whores. And I ran away because, again, I'd stole my mother's boyfriend's drugs and his money. And I fucking, it was so weird, Louisa. They threw me out of the house and I went up to the House of Ambrose liquor store to buy vodka. Because even though I was underage, the guy would sell me alcohol. And I was up at the payphone and I had this weird little phone book I kept my numbers in. I was trying to find somebody who would take me in for the night. And a key, a spare key to the apartment was in this little phone book. thought came to me. I was in there and I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll steal their money and my mother's car and I'll drive to Mexico. (laughs) I also like how this is like a probably a stimulant fueled thought of like being quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Out of a drunken fucking state. That's, that's a trip. You said that because there's these weird things. We have these little brainstorms or these, ideas that definitely trigger that fight or flight, right? Because this is what this was, fight or flight. So I'm like low crawling through the room to my mother's fucking, her, her nightstand, I grab the keys. I'm like, oh shit, I know she keeps some drugs in here. So she was big on the pockets and the jackets and the closets, <laughs> money and coke or whatever. And I'm digging through and I find like this big fucking bag of rocky shit. I'm like, oh cool, I'll take that. And then he was the same thing with the pockets or there was like all through the apartment in Oakwood, there was corners of the carpet ripped up and there was drugs or money put under there. Yeah, just like weird lumps. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, yeah, I had no idea that was there. Um, and I took a bunch of pills and I found about $6,000 in cash, which, you know, taking $6,000 in cash in Mexico is like taking fucking, 
well, six thousand millionaire. Um, and I jumped in her car and in a semi blackout drove down to fucking Ensenada. Stay down there. You're such a lucky man. I mean, for all of the horrible luck and trauma, like it's like the fact that you're alive is a miracle. I know it's really true. I love talking about this. This is good because I'll be able to reference this with some of the new book I'm writing. Cause I don't think my memory has been this good in an interview in a minute. And I've done a lot of podcasts. Um, so every morning I'd get in this car and my mother's stethoscope and everything she needed her files were in there because she was a visiting nurse. And I know my mother did the best she could. She was strung out on fucking pills, snorting Coke, drinking gin, totally inaccessible. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I came across the border and they immediately sent me to secondary inspection. Um, I remember walking into secondary inspection. I had like these OP shorts on flip flops and like this fucking God, it was the worst name they called these shirts. They called them white beaters, right? They used to call them white beaters. I mean, I feel like now they're called like A shirts or something, but I still refer to them as white beaters because yeah, <laughs> I haven't been. White beater that's like going off constantly, right? Um, and I remember just like, dude, I was walking into secondary inspection. I put my hands in my pocket. Get your fucking hands out of your pocket being pushed down on the concrete. I'm like, oh, this is fucking real. This is real, and it's a San Diego County. And the judge, I got a nudge from the judge, and he's like, I spoke to your parents, and he said, if you join the service, they'll drop all the charges. Ooh. And I was like, can I think about it? And he goes, yeah, I'll give you fucking three years to think about it. So I go back to the cell, and thank God, there was this older black dude. He's like, so what happened? I went to that judge and I fucking he told me if I joined the service, I didn't have to go to jail. I'm like, fuck that. You know, I don't like the service. I don't believe in fucking military corporation. And he was like, wham, you go tell that fucking judge you will join the service. You don't want to go down this road, kid. Like, I just remember. Like, this dude set me straight. Like, so literally. <laughs> it's like smack. Yeah. So... God, this is a crazy way this story just went, but it's pretty fucking interesting. Um, and I remember getting out of jail that night in San Diego, and there was nobody to call. There was nothing happening, and I had nowhere. I slept on the, I slept on the steps of the San Diego Convention Center, like with palm fronds. <laughs> oh, she's very dramatic at this point. Bad <laughs> <laughs> and. I was wearing flip-flops and the shirt and the fucking shorts. And I'm like, who can I call? And there was one kid, Gregory Whitaker, like a punk rock dude that I hung out with because we worked at this fucking fantasy sales, this porn mail order company together. And I called him and he Western Union, Union me $50. I got on the train and I made it back to LA. And my mom let me sleep in the laundry room of the Oakwood. She would not have me in her place. And I found out where the, the pimps were. They'd moved to 1942 Grace Street, right off of Franklin. And I was like, let me go over there. And I went over there, and they fucking just took me in. They're like, get a license. You'll be driving the girls to work. You'll be taking packages down to the Commodore Apartments. It's a rock house. It was a rock house. Now there's traps, but it was fucking pure rock-smoking madness. And I started getting really smoked out with them, you know, 
and my mother and sister were doing coke. And as long as I was up there, it's fine. So I started selling coke to my mother and my sister and they stepped all over their shit. Um, and she was really concerned about me because I was smoking coke nonstop. And at this time, Danny, her boyfriend, spent, they spent some time in Switzerland. They went on a trip and a friend of his named Kurt lived there. And he, Kurt was sending shitloads of quaaludes. It was the last place that you could find quaaludes. They were called Tokulon. I remember these things. Sending shitloads of quaaludes to Danny. And Danny was sending him, selling him Coke. So her biggest, like, her solution to me smoking so much cocaine was bringing me a ton of these quaaludes. Please sleep tonight. I understand you're facing, <laughs> but if you could just sleep tonight. And I'm like, A mother's love. <laughs> you know? Um, so all kinds of shit happened there. I could go down that road. And this whole time now, I'm waiting. I'm in the delayed entry program to join the branch of the service that I thought would be the easiest. And it was. It was the Air Force. And I finally get into the Air Force. I'm living with the pimps for about six months. And I Just find- trying to imagine you, like, steering a plane on, like, quaaludes and yeah. smoking coke. I'm just like, oh, my God. Um, it was actually worse than that. They gave me an M16, and I was guarding nuclear weapons. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Christ. Wow. <laughs> uh, but I'm with the pimps and the whores. And there's another guy I meet named Tricky Rick, who's this other pimp that lives on Kings Road in West Hollywood. And I fucking fall in love with two of his girls, Katera and Snow. And I'm just so strung out on these two, like, 27-year-old. Oh, it was so brutal when I had to go to the service. And I tried to dodge it. But if you dodge that shit, then you really go to jail for, like, five years. So I end up going, joining the service, and I end up at Plat- at um, Lackland Air Force Base in basic training in June, completely fucking still strung out on quaaludes, still coming off this long fucking free base bender. Can't drink, no drugs, and I'm in basic training. It's six weeks, and I'm just fucking so gone and getting screamed at, and you piece of shit, you're from Hollywood, you must be a faggot, only steers and queers come from Hollywood. And it was just like these really gnarly um, drill instructors or tech instructors, whatever they called them. And just like getting up at 5 a.m. to fucking trumpets, reveille, whatever, being in, oh God, it was gnarly, dude. It sounds, I mean, especially like what a brutal like transition from the lifestyle you were living. Yeah. At, wow, at 18. No. No, it wasn't 18. Was it 20? I don't know. But it was gnarly. And it went through there, and then they did all these tests on me. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's fit to be a security policeman. Security, there's LE, law enforcement, and there's SP, security policeman. Security policeman like work around planes. Sometimes they work around planes that are uploaded with nuclear weapons. Sometimes they don't. They transferred me to Plattsburgh, New York, oddly enough. Back (laughs) Back East. Oh yeah. As new, new young recruits from Plattsburgh. Oh my God. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) After this training, this place called Camp Bullis, where I learned how to fucking do outdoor maneuvers, which was really fun and learned how to shoot weapons. Like, how were you feeling at that time? Were you still kind of like shell-shocked by the entire experience or like what was going going through your head? Yes, I was shell-shocked, but I kind of, it kind of brought me back to that Pride House experience 
And I was like, wow, I think this is what I need. I need discipline. I need discipline. I need to have like somebody telling me, like, I see why people do fucking 20 years in the Air Force or any military branch, whatever. Because there's this feeling of like ease and comfort of somebody telling you what to do. Like me in and of myself, I'm a total fuck up. But for alcoholics and addicts, like that never, like self-discipline, first of all, there's no such thing for me because self can't discipline self, right? It's like, that's why I need a power greater than self. It's like, if I could just kind of get it together and pull myself up by the bootstrap, literally. Imagine. Um, and of course, it's just fucking like crazy. And, you know, went up to Montreal and drank a lot and ended up on St. Catherine Street, which was where all the strip clubs were. And up to this point in the service, I had not done cocaine yet. And I met her, you know, a stripper, which by the way, they were 18 and over there. It wouldn't even have to be 21. Fully nude was 18. Bizarre. And she had an eight ball and I did a bump and I was like, can you get me an eight ball? <laughs> like, you know, how do we get me an eight ball? Right. Yeah. And took it back to the base and was like, all right, I'm not going to smoke it. I'm not going to smoke it. And to not smoke it, I had to show up for this, what's called an ORI, an operation readiness inspection. So while I'm on the fucking flight line, you might've read this. I don't know if you read my book. I'm on the flight line and it's fucking 30 below with the lake chill factor. And I'm just like sweating from the amount of speed that I've been fucking eating. I'm drinking 151, smoking like a maniac, just like so gone. And I asked to be relieved and I go back to the base and I cook up this fucking Coke and I burn like 15 fucking cigarettes at once because I won't need the ashes to put on the can to smoke the Coke. And I'm smoking Coke on the fucking flight line in this little gate shack guarding an uploaded FB one like jacking around freak the fuck out and they start coming around to like check your job knowledge you have to have all this shit memorized about the nuke about the policies around the nuke about what's going to happen if somebody comes in and tries to take the nuke what is the team that shows up what is that whole policy when the team shows up and how you set up a perimeter and how you like all this. Oh my God. And you're like gacked out of your mind. Like totally. freaking out. Completely <laughs> and they uh, show up, actually pass all of the fucking questions. But this Lieutenant's like looking at me. He's like, are you sweating all right? eyeballs? Sweating <laughs> eyeballs. It's like 40 to below with the wind chill. He's like, are you all right? What's wrong with you airmen? I'm like, oh, I, you know, I got the flu. These ORIs. It's like, all right, get back in that gate shack, warm up, take care of yourself. I was like, oh, of course they like <laughs> disappear into the haze of the fucking, you know, the runway lights or whatever, and the can comes out and just, and you know, that was my experience there until somebody ratted me out, and I got kicked out, and ended up in New York City. I mean, but how did you kind of evade prison? Because you like, you know what I mean? What's up? I mean, I was living in Long Island, but I was in New York City constantly. A rap scallion. (laughs) Really attracted to the Lower East Side, like because the Lower East Side looked like how I felt like. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it was like, oh, this is a direct reflection of this crumbling fucking internals, and just went on a serious crack run, and crack was just. Oh my God, you know. Well, no, you don't know. You're not that old. No, I don't, because I was born in 86. 
so, so I'm like, around when was this? And how old were you? And like, what, like, it was around 80. What's up? I got thrown oh, cool. out in 85. And I ended up in Long Island with this really sweet girl, but like sneaking into the city constantly just to hang out and go to museums. And I was like, cause I, my father was an auctioneer and we were surrounded by art and like cars and jewelry. And like, I always liked that world, that world of culture and painting and jewelry and just cool shit furniture. Cause he had all kinds of shit in mid modern uh, Victorian, you know, all that. So, like, to be in New York and be around that was fucking dope, but I couldn't stop smoking coke again, you know, and moved out of there. And again, just, like, was in a relationship that, I don't know, it was, like, kind of plain Jane girl that I was hoping could make me a little more plain Jane or just maybe, plain I, could, <laughs> maybe I could settle in and be chill and didn't work, you know, and, States over for a couple of years while I was there and came out to LA. And Just mother- through sheer willpower or because you were being like a good dog or like how? Sheer willpower, going to meetings, but just that fucking. So how did you kind of initially get like introduced? Like, was that kind of common knowledge that people just like went to 12 step fellowships if they needed help? Or how did you kind of enter that world? When I was in Pride House, they had panels come in, you know, 16 cool. and a half. Um, and oddly enough, a musician named Del Shannon, who wrote a song called Runaway. It's so weird. Anyways, he came in and I knew that song. It was like this 50s, 60s song. And yeah, like, run, 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 run away, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, he's a musician and he's an AA and AA's cool. So it kind of planted the seed. You know what I mean? It planted the seed and that was kind of the place that I always went back to based on that one experience. And I tried to do other things. I tried like the Sterling's men's group. Gross. I tried like (laughs) more therapy, more, you know, a men's group where they do trust exercises, fall backwards, we'll catch you or maybe we won't or whatever, all that weird shit. Um, But I always ended up back in AA and came out to visit. My mother was living on 5848 Hazeltine, they had bought a condo. They moved out of Oakwood. And her boyfriend was just moving shitloads of coke. Now he was he was selling pills, but he was moving a lot of cocaine. They had like a little network. It was him. He handled the valley. It was Henry who handled the West Side Santa Monica all the way down to Manhattan Beach. And it was his cousin Jack who basically handled all of Orange County. Um, he can't he handled downtown into Orange County. And there was fucking cocaine everywhere. And it was that real shit. They didn't cut it. They did not cut cocaine. They did not believe in that. They were getting it so cheap because they were buying so much. And they just fucking smashed all the competition. And there was just cocaine everywhere. And I was like, wow, I got to move back to L.A., you know. And again, and that was when I ended up in my first psych ward. I was on about a nine or ten day cocaine smoking binge. Because it was just everywhere in that house. And I remember my mother finding me at like Arthur's hideaway. <laughs> what is that even? <laughs> real thing on Cahuenga. I don't even know who's still there. God, I was on such a sick one. And she came and she was, I'm pretty sure she was reading the big book through the door. 
Yeah, was she, so she was sober at that point. Yes, she was sober. She gotten sober in 86, but was still living with the Coke dealer. It wasn't Genius. Because <laughs> he had fucking money, and she just could do whatever she wanted. You know, he's making fucking whatever, $10,000 a week. Like, that's insane. No, but I mean, they can say that, like, you know, they talk about, like, you can get sober in a crack house if you want. Like, and yeah. it's true. Like, that's incredible. That true. Love your mom. <laughs> removed or you have? Oh, my God. You would love to interview her on your show. Oh, my God. I should have her on the show. She's here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, the first of a couple of different 5150s in St. Joe's Hospital and then just rehab after rehab. A lot of rehabs, a lot of detoxes, a lot of intensive outpatients, a lot of PHPs, partial hospitalization patients. Um, Cause like the way you tell it, I mean, it sounds like there's like a lot of excitement and adventure and a lot of insanity, but like up until this point, when you start to get kind of like put in psych words in fifty one fifty, it sounds like it started to be real suffering. Yeah, real accurate. And trying to recapture those years with like the pimps and whores, you know what I mean? Trying to go back to that time when it was just fun and we we're all just hanging out and passing this big pipe and the fucking torch, and it just wasn't that anymore. It was like me alone in a dark room with a whole different Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. Um, More. Yeah. And like real heavy hallucinations. Like it was so weird because when I saw Requiem for a Dream, there's like that scene where she thinks she's really in the studio and there's all these people clapping and go, go, go. That I had that same crowd in front of me, like pushing me to take a bigger hit, to take a bigger hit. Yeah, that one was great. Like, I remember when I saw that scene in that movie the day that it opened. And it's funny because I watched uh, Jerry did a reading, or no, Cubby did a reading, and Jerry Saul was with him. And then I, I didn't read the book, so I went and saw the movie. And that scene really got me because I oh fuck I know what that's mm. about when you're so yeah. high and they're like they're cheering you on um, yeah that's the one that brought me to the fifty one fifty and it just went on and on like that you know bad and I ended up getting sober again for four years lived with this girl Tina who's so amazing like this amazing artist and. I met her in swingers and I walked up <laughs> wearing this little shirt and on her back was a fucking plane going down in flames. I was like, Oh, that's kind of hot. You're like, you. <laughs> and I talked to her and she's like, I just want you to know I'm on Prozac. I'm like, Oh, that's so cool. She's honest. But like she drinks and does Coke on it. And we went on a sick fucking run and I ended up in Betty Ford and Convince my roommate to buy an ounce of Coke and we'll figure out a way to smoke it in here after bed chat. Such a menace. <laughs> yeah, I'm such a fucking menace. She brings the Coke down and this little piece of art. And it was like, she's like, if you pull the tab on the side, it'll open it up. It was like this. And she'd put all the Coke in the pipes and everything. Oh, no, she didn't put pipes. We had to go back to the cans with the ashes. Bed checks were at 10.30, and at 10.31, we were hitting the fucking pipe. And sucking the can, as we called it. Unfortunately, he was a Vietnam vet and fell into, like, these really intense PTSDs in the middle of the night, like, crawling around on the floor. And there was this, oh, my God, there was a sliding glass window, and he'd just stand at the window and be like, oh, fuck, he's 
Charlie's there. They're coming. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> oh my God, that's so fucking dark. I'm like, I'm sure that like, you know, being at Betty Ford for, I'm assuming, drug and alcohol addiction and you like being like, we should totally smoke coke out of these fucking cans was really, really helpful for PTSD. Oh my God. Oh. I left there with a kid whose dad's plane, his Learjet went down and he got like $27 million. That's all in the book. I don't need to get into all that. That's in the first book. Let's so I'm curious, like, stuff, right? Or well, how, well, how did you kind of like, what changed for you eventually to get sober? Cause it sounds like, you know, the consequences were like keeping up and yet they were not enough. Like what changed? Dude. I decided to leave a leave AA completely. I'd met another girl, this girl Dion, really another fucking cool old school. Went to Fairfax High, punk rock girl, and um, my stepfather got bladder cancer, and I was selling pills. He was still deep in the pills; he had stopped dealing cocaine. And I took over his business, and I was running these doctors and prescriptions everywhere. I was making a shitload of money. We bought this beautiful house in Eagle Rock, like this Neutra case study had sweeping 180 degree views. And again, I was like, okay, I arrived. I wasn't, my mind told me, well, you were never really into pills. Wasn't thinking about And three years ran it hard and I wanted out and I fucking, there was only one way out for me. And I put together this whole thing where I was, I'm going to burglarize this drug dealer. Because I'd watched him one day pull money out from under his dresser. I'm like, oh, fuck, he's got some money under there. And my stepfather was one of his clients. And he said he's probably got a million dollars stashed in that house somewhere. He's fucking, he's afraid to go to the bank too often. He has all these other assets. So I was like, I remembered all this shit. And by this time, my stepfather had committed suicide in the condo they lived in, in Van Nuys. And I'd taken over this business. And I put this whole thing together. And I burglarized this guy's apartment I'll give the address he's dead now that's the only reason I'm talking about it and went up there high as fuck somehow cracked the fuck out and turned over these dressers and there was just snacks and then I was turning to walk out and turned over one dresser like this big long bureau and I was like oh fuck I think there's something under that other dresser I turned that over and it was just stacks and stacks and some of them had been there so long like the rubber bands were broken and the money was like rotting. I just filled up this fucking Nike bag. I was like, all right, now I got what I want. I had this private investor's box at American Data Vault and I put the money in there. I was like, all right, it was just under a million dollars. I didn't know it was under a million dollars until I counted it like a month later. And that was the day I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to cry help. I have what I need. Wow. Famous last words. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but that's crazy. Like that, the fact that you're even like I, like your last plan. I love talking about this because you're so. I mean, it's wild. Your mind, your your memory is like so insane. Because like I don't have a lot, which is why I like asking people about their memories. Um, so I was still so what with happened? Dion. You actually, what's up? I was still with Dion. I went to cry help. Three days into cry help, I was like. Fuck this. And there was this old school junkie from New York whose family owned a bunch of liquor stores. His name was Jamie. And he was like, fuck it, man. Are you down? I'm like, I'm down. And 
Enterprise picked us up. My lips were still fucking burnt from smoking crack. I was wearing like a cry help robe. <laughs> some some cool slipper socks. <laughs> and I flew up to Eagle Rock because I knew I had about 10 grand stashed up there. The house was locked up. I crawled through the dog door and I ended up at the Mondrian, like on the sixth floor, shooting heroin and smoking crack. OD, but thank God Jamie was there. He brought me out of it. I woke up in a cold in the bathtub. And my wife, nobody knew where I was. You could check in at any of those hotels and just give them a fake name. You cannot be found in those hotels. That's why people die in those hotels. And finally, it was like, this has to stop. Partially because I wanted to save my relationship. And I ended up at um, Promises, the Promises on the West Side. Well, I mean, it's crazy, too, that you were like, I have almost a million dollars. I think I'm going to go to Cry Help because that's like, I'll definitely stay there. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. It was a setup. And I completely fucked up my detox because I was eating about, up to that point, I, oh my God, I was eating almost 15 Zanny bars a day. I was probably taking 30 or 40 Percodan a day. I had built up a really crazy tolerance over three or four years. Like I had super high tolerances for alcohol and drugs, like amazing, obviously. Shocking. <laughs> the detox was horrific. It was horrific. And I never wanted but to do it again. Did they know what to do with you at Promises? Yes. Like they were knew. they prepared to kind of like you know do what? That that, with you? That's interesting you asked that because they didn't know what to do with me at Los Encinas. Um, I went to American Hospital, but it was fucking gross. So I got in a cab and left there. Um, this was just <laughs> You're like, no, I have to go find this crack house instead. <laughs> this is disgusting. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I'm the guy who, like, is smoked the fuck out, like, snorting Dilaudid and drinking vodka and calling rehabs in, like, a pretty rundown fucking place on Orange Grove off of Melrose. Well, do you have a pool? What kind of food? <laughs> you know, what heated? rooms air conditioned? Like, I'm in fucking hell. But I want to make sure the what? next place I'm going to has... And this guy was finally like, why don't you just get here? That was the Betty Ford thing. Anyway, so I'm at Promises. They send me to the sober living. I'm really going to commit to this. I do their IOP. I get a call from American Data Vault that the Patriot Act, Patriot Act has closed these private investor boxes. I have to go to the American Data Vault, load up a oh, bank, no. just a million dollars, <laughs> bring it to the sober living for the night. Like literally put a pillowcase on it and was sleeping on it. Um, my roommate worked for like Cinemax or something. So I get the money back to, I, I put it in a safe deposit box, but I hold on to about a hundred grand. And I ask him like, Hey, can you launder some money for me? Can you put me on as an associate producer? So I'm giving him like just under 10,000 every week. And I'm starting to, this is what I'm doing in a sober living. I'm laundering. Yeah. I love it. I mean, especially cause you're like, I'm serious this time. <laughs> Um, I move back. Well, and it's funny too, because I feel like my my experience of you is like like your level of kind of self-awareness when it comes to kind of like being a, like shifty on a moral path is nuts. Like I because I've only known you sober. <laughs> and you're sensitive to your own like wiles and you talk about it, which is really powerful. So this idea that like this is how self-deluded you were at some point is wild to me. 
because oh, I don't know that side of you at all. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, so I get out of there. I relapse again. And she's like, yeah, I think we're done. And I move out and I'm living in the fucking Palazzo. I don't know how I ended up there. It was so gross, that place. And now I just can't stop drinking. I cannot fucking stop drinking to the point where like my liver hurts so bad. I can't even bend down to tie my shoe. Um, and I just, one day I leave the apartment and I'm walking around and I run into Josh Lazy and I'd known him for years. All people. (laughs) I was going to reference him earlier because his story about like doing cocaine on a relapse and wearing like four pairs of socks (laughs) because he had to like slide around silently. (laughs) Not yet. I should. That's a really good idea. (laughs) Wasn't for him. I wouldn't be a group facilitator. He brought me in and told me I had a talent that I didn't know I had. And he fucking, man, that dude. Yeah. Say what you want. That guy fucking helped me out at a time where I really needed the courage. No, man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of lazy. Like, yeah. Fine. Totally. Totally. Um, so, yeah. Here I am. And I'm in the Palazzo. And I walk out. I see lazy training his little bulldog at fucking wherever PetSmart. And um, Petco, excuse me. And I'm like, fuck, dude. I, I can't. I, I just, I don't know what to do. So just come to the meeting tomorrow. And I'm like, fuck, I can't go back to AA, dude more no maybe just never really did it just give it one more shot where the fuck else are you gonna go and i start walking and i'm just walking and walking and i walk down la brea and i go up wilshire and i run into another person at the program was at the fucking at lacma he's like why don't you come in man we'll just just come in mike let's look at some art i'm just sweating and i know i need a drink soon i'm trying not to but i know i'm also probably gonna go into a fucking seizure unless i have a drink I'm hanging out and I get a drink at the fucking, get some vodka. And I'm like, I talked to him. This guy, Mike, he was so dope. He's, you probably wouldn't know him. He was more of an East to West Side guy. I'm like, all right, I got to walk again, man. And I walk and I go all the way up fucking Fairfax. And I think I'm at Whole Foods. I'm just sitting in there and I run into another guy that I know. And of course I did because I'd been in LA for so long. And that guy picked me We're up. everywhere. <laughs> that guy picked me up and I went to the log cabin and I stayed for for a while and then I bought a house that house on Edgecliff I was hoping to get back with my wife so I was like oh maybe I'll impress her I'll buy this house and you know just lost all that tried to hold on to it by opening a sober living and ended up in the converted garage in the backyard smoking coke while there was eight residents in the sober living in front and hit another and another bottom and made it back in 2005 and relapsed in 2011, 20, 2008, losing everything, desperately trying to hold on to everything. 2011, I'd lost everything, huge bankruptcy, no longer a homeowner, like renting property, just humiliated with everything. Like I had had this money and I fucked all that up and just had a years of living at or below poverty after slinging shitloads of drugs. I'm like, this is where I deserve. I'm a piece of shit. I did all mm-hmm. this. I did all that. This is what my life is now. I got over on so many people. I burglarized this. I stole from here. I did all these credit card scams. I was doing disability scams, unemployment, fucking whatever. And just lived at or below poverty. You know, in between that time I'd met Dana and he's a big part of my life. And we both kind of had our trauma bonding thing before we even knew that that's what that was. You know, she had an alcoholic dad and 
but we had amazing times. Like we had the best sex and hung out and broke up. I broke up with her and we got back together and I've been through so much together. Oh my God. Like five different sponsors I had died. They all died sober, you know, Freddie, Mark, Joe, Philip, Jaime. And they all told me the same thing, man. You're going to need a power greater than yourself because I can't save you. You can just be a guide. And I didn't believe that. And I got so close to these people because they just genuinely cared. Like they didn't want anything. I just remember like, fuck, this is it. I have these friends. I have this this man in my life. He's like a mentor. And he died. And the next one died. And then fucking... In 2011, I just couldn't take it anymore. I got loaded again, but I was separated really fast. Dana kicked me out, and I was living in Didi and Matt's garage. Not living. I was in Didi and Matt's garage. Smoked out again. They didn't know I was smoking. I was fucking... I diluted all this heroin. I was dropping it in my nose. And I got separated again. And then in 2017... I was doing a job I absolutely didn't want to fucking do. Like, I was a sober companion. I was making like $1,200 a day, stuck in this fucking mansion in Beverly Hills with this fucking maniac asshole who was, by the way, like just my dad in this whole other skin. Oh, God. Like, full Beverly Hills, Rolls Royce driving, misogynistic, fucking verbally abusive to his kid scumbag. And like on day 10, I. Opened the medicine cabinet and there was these fucking trazodone, this pill that I only took in conjunction with three other pills. And I took a bunch of these one night. I took a bunch the next night and I didn't fucking tell anybody because after all, it wasn't really a, you know, it wasn't really a relapse, but they were his drugs and they were mind and mood altering. And I changed my time, changed my time a couple of months ago because of fucking lying. I was judging people that were microdosing or doing medical marijuana. And this little voice was like, you know, you're not being honest. About your sobriety, you know? So I just had an official six years. But I have to tell you, from 2005 to now has been nothing but harm reduction. You know, I did some crazy criminal shit at this hotel I worked at, at the London, and just couldn't stop being fucking felonious. Like, yeah, there's God, but, like, I got to get paid and did all... Oh, my God, that's a whole other story. No, but but I think that that's actually, like, I mean, kind of get it whittling down to this point of, like... I see you, you know, and like the, again, like. I haven't cried this, in a long fucking time. I'm, the, so I'm so glad that you felt safe enough to do so here. Cause I know some of those dudes and they're fucking amazing dudes. And that, that yeah. loss is brutal, you know, cause like you got good ones. Yeah. You know, and they couldn't save you. And that doesn't mean they didn't love you, you know, no, and exactly. that you didn't love them. Exactly. And. But how did, like, what was that surrender? Was it slow or were you, like, do you feel like resetting your time kind of marked it in a in a way that you felt, like, changed something? Or, like, how did those oh, amends work? Like, how did you kind of... I couldn't be having this conversation with you right now if I didn't change my sobriety day. There's no... Awesome. Way. I wouldn't have been this accessible. I definitely wouldn't have fucking cried. I shouldn't say fucking cried. There's nothing wrong with that. I still have that old... No, I mean, it's beautiful. And I do think, like, kind of, again, going back to the original kind of questions around, like, you know, kind of being pigeonholed into a masculinity that didn't feel like it fit. Yeah. You know? Yes. I mean, like, this this question that I wrote down next is, like, um, 
like working as how does working as a writer and an improv performer intersect with all this? But it seems like that kind of was answered in the beginning too. That it's in fact like a therapeutic uh, path. Yes, absolutely. So it seems that that's kind of a, a self-answering question of your your work in as a writer and a performer, kind of being a therapeutic path. Um, and then also, like, how did you and kind of Dana figure it out? Like, how did how did you maintain that relationship or like re-begin that relationship from this place? Well, first of all, I think being a performer, storyteller, improver, because um, I did the moth a couple of times and a lot of improv really helped me segue into being okay and kind of looking at life from the comedy angle instead of just the drama angle and slowly being able to break out of like that deep connection to all this trauma and anger and resentment and wounded fucking grief, whatever. So that kind of brought me to where I am today as this group facilitator, breaking down the book and doing improv groups with these people, these kids, a lot of them are kids actually, well, twenties, which is kids, kid to me. Um, and making pretty effective at doing that, really being able to carry a message of depth and weight without like preaching from a fucking hilltop or telling anybody what they have to do. Just there, you know, they're offering a path of consideration, you know, not there telling no. what they have to do, like deeper level. That's super powerful. Well, especially because I think it's also like your relationship with the program and like the book and the steps I think has been, you know, it's, it's been a long one and I'm sure has had a lot of different aspects. And so this idea of like being able to have like different ways of viewing it to offer people, I think is really powerful. Absolutely. I, I consider myself an AA dissident. You know what I mean? Just kind Tell of me more. Break it down. Because I was part of these groups that were so fucking like, really yeah, fundamentalist. You know, like, yeah, super fundamentalist. One was the, the Awakenings book, which I love. I'm actually having a new experience with that Awakenings book. And I'm just having that experience because I want to be able to be a little more of service to people. I had done that before and I lost that book. And I'm taking people through that BBA with like being very clear that this isn't the answer either. Mm -hmm. You just turning statements into questions to look at these considerations. It's not. So there was that group as outlined in the book group you know earlier on i'd had experiences with fucking joe and charlie and the pacific group and the paul fisher workshop and the herb kagan workshop i really believed that there was a group or a particular sect of aa that was going to fucking save me just like i did with those sponsors and thank god every time i did that i got loaded what a blessing to be able to not be able to, but to like be brought back to getting loaded based on the idea that I thought I really knew what I needed. So mm -hmm. I had to do everything I could do to fucking see that there was nothing I could do, but surrender into this. And I just have a really different idea about that big book now and about meetings. And I don't really give a fuck how people work their program. And I've given it's up. So fucking liberating. <laughs> I've given up on being spiritual. You know, I give amazing, up. but that's like, <laughs> but that's so sick though, because I think like, as you say that, like, we've also discussed the kind of like what it, or I, what I see, you know, or what I'm experiencing now is like observing somebody who is in fact in the process of having their ego crushed and is like fucking stoked about it. Consistently. 
I tried to be real spiritual. I fucking floated out of AA on a crack hit. You know, that's how trying to be spiritual worked for me. It doesn't work. Like, I think, I think I seek spiritual principles because I know how absolutely not spiritual I am in and of myself. So maybe I can remain spiritual by knowing I'm not the least bit spiritual. Yeah. No, you know, by like living in a reality. Yeah. My thing I, mean, lately, I like that a lot, actually. I think it's a really good... My thing lately is non-duality. I'm really into studying non-duality. And there's, there's this guy who does meetings. He's such a badass. He has a site called Zen Bitch Slap. You would love this guy. <laughs> Old like I'm writing that down also. Surfer fucking... Just gnarly. Another dissident. He's an AA dissident. But at the same time, you know, he's into AA. But he knows that that's just a book. It's just a finger. It's all everything. All yeah. this is the finger, right? No, and I mean, I, for those of you listening who are like, what does that mean? It's like a finger pointing to the moon. It's not the moon. But um, I think also, I don't know. I feel like I can love this more if I am allowed to interrogate it and find fault in it and be like, actually, this is like a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy that this is a product of like, there's not, it's not the, the be all and end all. And it's like one of the best tools I found to like learn how to love other people. So like, I love it enough to interrogate it or to want yeah, it to evolve, you know? Absolutely. You know, when it says that it's kindergarten. <laughs> totally kindergarten. They're, they're, and that book is about being all-inclusive. And all-inclusive in fucking 1939 was not all-inclusive and is not all-inclusive in 2023. Like, Bill and Bob made that really clear. And yes, they were forced Judeo-Christian fucking belief systems, but neither one of them would have it. Bob even went on to the Oxford group and studied Eastern fucking Buddhism meditation because he was desperately trying to use a spiritual solution for a problem he wasn't even clear on right so yeah the book has that but i just have people change the gender i don't give a fuck what you write yeah make it entirely neutral like change the word god for all i care it's in literally every page totally. like, I but i mean what you do because you're still trying to separate yourself from solution if all you're fucking worried about is the gender that's involved in something God, even the worst people had some fucking idea of a solution. You know what I mean? In my life. Yeah. You have to like those personalities, but like, they're just, these are all fucking messengers. And if I take what they say as like the end all be all, then, you know, I need to- I'm in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and again, like, do I love it enough to believe it can grow? And like, the answer is yes, because I do think it is a beautiful lens ultimately for seeing the world and like- I mean, I guess the before we go get flung into the lightning round, it's just where you don't think too hard about anything. Good. <laughs> and I just ask you fun questions to make it light and, light and sweet at the end. Great. Um, you know, the, and then I throw like a hardball at you and I'm like, so oh, yeah. <laughs> 12 steps have a notion of, of a sex ideal or like who we want to show up as sure. in our romantic or sexual partnerships. And like, I wonder what yours is like today. Like, where uh -huh. are you growing towards? You know what? I'm, we're both really blessed because we're literally on some of the same pages with this recovery path. We've both gotten really into, and it's just, it's not that we, there was some weird codependency thing about it. We both got really into non-duality and, you know, it's kind of cool that I can call myself out when I'm expecting Dana act, to act a certain way based on what my idea is of what a wife 
should do or be. And, you know, I've kind of relinquished ownership of people, you know, and especially of relationships. Like, you know, for years I thought I knew what a mom should be, what a wife should be, um, friends, whatever, you know, that whole fucking third step situation where you start reading through that before you do the fourth step. It's like, it's like, fuck man, it's the titles have been dropped and it just kind of becomes another child of this creator power. So we get to meet on that level. Um, you know, we're both a little older now, so it's not like we were, it's the intimacy isn't like when we were together for the first 10 years, <laughs> like it was, it went, it went long and good. And, and now it's like, it's good. It's good. It, you know what? Unfortunate. It's not unfortunate. I just have a pretty crazy sex drive still for somebody who's 58 fucking years old. And the ideal is, is to turn and be of service to people because I'm a cheater. I've cheated in every fucking relationship. And I've been with this woman since 2008. And it's not that I haven't found it necessary to cheat. It's just, it was removed in this relationship, you know, and it it was removed through a lot of sex ideals. It was removed by like turning out and not just being of service to others, but like meditation, prayer, yoga, exercise, walking, like getting more into writing and improv because I don't want to hurt anybody, like especially a woman. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I've watched too many women get too hurt in my lifetime and have also been that kind of misogynistic, but gaslighting misogynist, like two-faced fucking misogynist. And that's just been removed. Like the amount of love and compassion I have specifically for women. I mean, of course for all, but I think just watching the way women were treated growing up, like I became, it's funny. Mark Marin calls it an alpha doormat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I always love that. So funny. It's like, well, fuck you. I'm sorry. What can I do to help you? Like, it's just a weird thing, right? And I'm no longer that person. Like, it's just what you see is what you get. Like the mic that's here is the mic that's going to be in there talking to Dana is the mic that's going to be at the gym is the mic that's going to be the group facilitator later. Like it's pretty fucking seamless. And that's also not just a testament to doing these steps, prayer, meditation, but to improv because it's all the world's a stage, right? Not going to show up as the best character. But that's awesome. I mean, like, because I, I do actually see that you're like walking the walk when it comes to kind of a non-duality and that by by actually kind of dropping the whole like black and white, like I saw you just do it, correcting yourself, like, unfortunately, fortunately, like kind of being able to shift in real time with this idea of like, I don't, I'm not going to shame myself. I'm not the bad dog. I'm not going to kind of yeah. like, like bl- put blame on those parts because like yeah. it's not useful. So I'm just going to try and be as consistent as possible and like yeah. do our best. Because you know what? I like my masculinity. My masculinity is not fucking toxic. Like I go to the gym, I work out, I go to the shooting range. I love fucking shooting things. <laughs> At the range. You know, pop posters from a little fucking BB gun. It's like it's early imprinting like a baby duck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Oh my God. You something. So we were, me and my stepbrother were some of the first school shooters with BB guns. 
We went to our oh school. <laughs> I like that. You can see how I let that hang for a minute. Yeah, um, but you like delighted in it too. So I was like, I can't. <laughs> we went to Susan B. Coombs uh, Elementary or Junior High, whatever it was, on a Saturday and just went with our Daisy BB guns and shot out all the windows. And actually, we did shoot at a janitor, which is totally fucked. But just be. <laughs> we went back on Monday. Fucking classrooms were destroyed. Fucking windows blown out. We're just kind of hanging out in class, like because I'm such a good liar, gaslighter extraordinaire. And the one kid that was with us, Dwayne Wiseheart, ratted. That was it, man. <laughs> Dwayne Wiseheart, you little shit. Dwayne Wiseheart, a classic, classic Dwayne. <laughs> Not so wise in that heart. I know. I mean, <laughs> who knows? We're talking about it now. So it's, it's a great name, though. Like, I love that. Like, the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you, and you'll have a <laughs> heart one day. Um, uh, but I, mean, I just have to tell you, I'm sorry. I know we're all over the place, but my stepmother, cool. Linda One, came and picked us up. <laughs> Brought us back to this house in Banning, which was another disgusting, gross fucking nightmare time in my life. Um, my dad was an auctioneer in Cathedral City in Palm Springs, which there's a whole other fucking story with people disappearing another time. Um, and brought us back home and like bent us over the table and hit us with this fucking belt like 15 times each. Me and my stepbrother, Brian. Linda. Linda won. And, because my dad told her to. Like, I'm busy, but fucking, you know, give those kids the strap. And so we're sitting there, and I didn't cry anymore because my dad signed this thing for corporal punishment where the principal could hit you and swat you at school. But we're sitting there, and she's like, do you guys want to go see Grizzly Adams? This is very confusing for you. <laughs> she's, like, beating the shit out of you, and then she's like, do you want to go to a movie? <laughs> Yo. <laughs> No wonder where you you were confused. <laughs> like so confused. Wait, is that good or bad? Or and my dad was like that. You turn on and off the anger, like screaming, yelling. Took a bite out of a guy's face in a movie theater, and then like we're in the car, and he's like, "Do you want to go to Wendy's?" Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you wound up where you did. <laughs> oh, me and you both, sister. Jesus, Christ. Oh, fuck. <laughs> our relationship looks good these days. We get to have heart-to-hearts. And I mean, we both get caught up on our phones and iPads and bullshit. But her family loves me, and they've taken me in. And I've had my fucking problems and been at odds with them. But, like, my life's really good, man. There's some funny opportunities coming at me that I didn't even know existed. There's a shopping agreement for this really cool premium doc. We'll see if that gets made. Um, writing the second book. I'm actually doing a reading at the last bookstore with fucking my heroes. Dudes, I grew up with Keith Morris from Circle Jerks. And with Amazing. I know. It's so cool. Jack Grisham from TSOL. Like, those are guys that are older than me. I grew up on that fucking punk rock, and they've asked me to come and read. Like, yeah, man. Everything's good. I fucking... Yeah, you look really happy. I fucking... Loved this. Thank you so much. I hope this can be it edited. It's a joy. With my yeah, I mean, but I think I don't think I'm gonna, like it's typically edited for kind of technical difficulties or anything that you're okay. like, oh, after the fact. 
but like I, I I think it's a you're an incredible storyteller, so I'm happy to leave so much of that. <laughs> Good, you don't have to. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of this. I'm cool with it awesome. all. I feel like there no, was I, vulnerability. I there, but what's that? It didn't feel problematic. <laughs> no, it didn't. I mean, I feel weird about expressing that kind of emotion live, but I need to let that go. No, I think it's beautiful. I, I think it makes you like, it takes some of the bravado out and is about like a, a real experience. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I would, I would swing into the lightning round, but I actually feel like that this is a really nice note to end on. <laughs> it's up to you, whatever you want to do. If there's a lightning round and you want to do that just to add on. You're talking about just a couple of minutes or you want to just end now? Yeah, no, a couple of minutes. I mean, but I don't think it's that important. So let's actually, if you could just tell us where to find you in case people want to check out the book or check out your work or see you doing improv, like um, plug yourself. Improv I haven't done for a while. I only do it once a month with the uh, E Crazy Catholico, E Crazy Judia Loco, this Mexican Catholic dude that I, me and him were both like survivors of crazy religious upbringings. I do that. That's only once a month. I could post that. I, I'm really big on the stories, as you know, in my uh, yes. Instagram. My stories are amazing. <laughs> They're insane. Uh, so you can contact me at Dead Western Mind on Instagram, Dead underscore Western underscore Mind. Um, yeah, friend me or fucking, I answer every DM. If you have any questions, you want to know where to find my book, there's a link to the book there. I think, I think people would enjoy it. I don't know if you read it, but it's pretty enjoyable. It's pretty fucking crazy. I didn't read it, but I read your good your Goodreads reviews are insane. People love your book so fucking much. They write like novellas in response. I'm not sure if you read your own reviews because of you oh know. My God, how many Goodreads? It's incredible. I have not read what's up. Read. I have not read my Goodreads reviews. They're wonderful. I have about 58 really good reviews on Amazon too. I will be going to Goodreads to read the reviews. <laughs> I usually don't care about the reviews, but I just like that there's so many. It's dope. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good thing. It's fine. Fucking hit me up. Ask me questions. If you need help trying to get sober, stay sober. I'll do whatever I can. Fucking rad and great dog content also. <laughs> oh, I love her. She's so amazing. Thanks again. Girl. Thank you so much. A really, really nice time to catch up. I'm so happy that we got to chat. Me too. Me too. I, don't be a stranger. Hit me up anytime. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health. Recovery, got a spiritual growth. Sober, sex, you'll never.